You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Kachang is out, about, and more evasive than ever. Data breached at Bulgaria's National Revenue Agency has turned up online in at least one hacker forum. Facebook's planned Libra cryptocurrency received close scrutiny in a tepid reception on Capitol Hill this week. MSISoft offers some common-sense reflections on why local governments are attractive ransomware targets. Please patch Bluekeep. And my interview with Richard Clark, co-author of the new book, The Fifth Domain. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 19th, 2019. ESET reports on recent activity of Kachang, an elusive threat group engaged in cyber espionage. Most of Kachang's recent targets have been in Slovakia, Belgium, Chile, Guatemala, and Brazil. ESET studiously avoids attributing Kachang but they do observe that since its discovery by FireEye in 2013, Kachang has been associated with China. The recent campaigns show improved backdoors and greater evasiveness. In MITRE's threat group taxonomy, Kachang is also known as APT-15 and sometimes as Vixen Panda or Playful Dragon. Hacked Bulgarian tax information has begun turning up in various discreditable hacker online neighborhoods, ZDNet says that the person who posted it, a gentleman going by the name Instakilla, obtained it from a download link carelessly displayed by a Bulgarian television news report. Instakilla crowdsourced a solution to the password and has now made the data available. He's not worried about doing so. He's a Bulgarian citizen, but since he's not the original hacker, Mr. Killa doesn't feel accountable for anything. So he's got that going for him. Maybe. But the alleged original hacker has now been identified. Computing Magazine, citing Bulgarian sources, identifies the suspect as Kristian Boykov, age 20. Mr. Boykov had been employed by TAD Security, apparently in a cybersecurity training role. This is consistent with early reports that said the perpetrator was a white hat pen tester gone bad. Bulgarian social media are a Twitter with talk that some of his students were members of the police cyber squad that collared him. So good job, Teach, although it's always better to get an apple on your desk than a set of steel bracelets. In 2017, Mr. Boykoff had exposed and disclosed security issues affecting the country's Ministry of Education, which publicly praised him for his efforts. The present episode is therefore a sad come-down. The police say that the tax agency hack wasn't even particularly artful. This seems to be figuring in Mr. Boykoff's defense. His attorney suggests that Mr. Boykoff was too skillful and resourceful to have pulled off what looks like the work of a skid. Skid or not, the data were compromised. 
The way the case has proceeded is interesting. Mr. Boykoff would originally have faced up to five years in prison upon conviction, but a letter from Bulgaria's National Revenue Agency explained to the justice system that the data they lost wasn't really critical infrastructure, and so now a conviction seems likely to bring just a fine. The National Revenue Agency isn't really making what the lawyers call an admission against interest here. The agency is itself liable to fines over a data breach, perhaps as high as $22 million. Facebook's plans for Libra received close congressional scrutiny this week. The concerns are familiar, but the regulatory way forward is, as Wired points out, unclear. Should Libra be regulated like a bank, an investment, a contract? And how might necessary regulation preserve the decentralization that makes altcoins so interesting in the first place? The group of sevens central bankers are also cool to the notion, at least in its pure, buccaneering, and unregulated libertarian form. Emsisoft reflects on the recent wave of ransomware hitting U.S. local governments. The firm suggests that counties and towns are vulnerable because of outdated systems and big attack surfaces. Over a third of local governments rely on technology that's at least a generation behind the current state-of-the-art. And the towns and counties offer so many different public web services that they're inevitably exposed to attack. SC Magazine and others continue to report that hundreds of thousands of devices remain unpatched against Bluekeep. Do give some thought to patching. If not for yourself, think of what you're doing to herd immunity. And finally, as we all learned in elementary school, fire is a good servant but a bad master. So here's another thing to worry about that wouldn't have occurred to us before. Hair straighteners can be hacked. Now, for those of you in the security community who aren't necessarily fashion-forward or especially grooming-conscious, we'll explain what a hair straightener is. A hair straightener is a device that uses heat to texture hair. Since there's at least a marketing, if not always a clearly functional reason, to render all sorts of devices smart, this has now been done to some models of hair straightener. But assuming you wanted a hair straightener in the first place, why would you want a smart one? Well, so it could communicate with stuff to maximize your attractiveness, obviously. In this case, Naked Security has an article describing one high-end product, the Glamorizer Bluetooth Smart Straightener, which communicates with an associated Android Glamorizer app. The problem is that the smart system is easily hackable, as a researcher at Pentest Partners has demonstrated. You could, if you so wished, remotely override the Glamorizer's temperature setting from a toasty but arguably bearable 248 degrees Fahrenheit to a super Bradburian Fahrenheit 455. That's hot enough to melt iodine, selenium, or tin, and plenty hot enough to set your house afire. Sure, the hacker would have to be in Bluetooth range, but how hard is that? Anyway, dumb smart is perhaps worse than old-fashioned dumb. Think twice before styling your hair with what amounts to a soldering iron. Besides, trust us, your hair looks fantastic as it is. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, and he's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, scanning your network for vulnerabilities is an important part of uh, your regular cyber hygiene, but uh, you wanted to talk today about um, some issues that could come up when you do that. Yes, when you're running these vulnerability scans, uh, one thing a lot of people are sort of concerned of is like... Uh, unintentional denial of service attacks and such. But uh, there's another problem that actually one of our Storm Center handlers, Xavier, uh, ran into uh, recently, and that's the use of credentials in these vulnerability scans. Now, a very simple vulnerability scan would basically just scan your network, uh, check what servers are exposed, and report on that. But that's usually not all that useful. So uh, what you do is you actually provide your vulnerability scanning system with credentials. It can log into systems and uh, then find out more detail of what the system may be vulnerable to. The tricky part here is that in order to do this, uh, the credentials being used by the vulnerability scanning systems often have some elevated privileges and an attacker can actually take uh, advantage of these credentials and uh, use them then to attack your system if they're able to intercept a connection that is established by the vulnerability scanning system. Hmm. So these credentials are typically being sent in the clear. Well, uh, really depends. Uh, if they're being sent to clear, of course, then it's really easy. But right. in one particular case, uh, if you're connecting uh, to uh, SMB file shares, so you have a Windows network, uh, you're using SMB to connect to remote systems. In this case, uh, you can launch uh, what's known as an NTLM relay attack, where the attacker essentially is getting in the middle 
between the vulnerability scanning system and the target system and then sort of playing them off against each other in order to gain access to the system without actually having to break any hashes or actually know any credentials that are being involved. And, and so what's the solution here? What's the best practice to avoid this? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I would not uh, use any protocols that send credentials in clear text. Uh, so clear text uh, protocols should be avoided anyway. You probably don't even need to then log in using your volatility management system. Now, as far as SMB is concerned, it's a little bit more tricky because it's almost sort of a feature of some SMB versions. So your real solution here is to prevent that NTLM relay attack. You should do that by using SMB version three and by enabling SMB signing. Uh, that, of course, is only possible if you're using the latest versions of Windows. Hmm. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. My guest today is Richard A. Clark, former National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection and Counterterrorism for the United States. Under President George W. Bush, he was appointed Special Advisor to the President on Cybersecurity. He's currently chairman of Good Harbor Consulting. He's the author or co-author of several books, the latest of which is titled The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. The book is co-authored with Robert Kanaki. So the military talks about things as domains, land, sea, air, and over the years they added space as the, the fourth domain. Now, in the last few years, the military have talked about a fifth domain, cyberspace, uh, where they expect cyber war to take place. So we're calling this the fifth domain because, not just because the book is about cyber war, because it's also about other things that take place every day in cyberspace, uh, including what happens to you as an individual, what happens to corporations. Uh, It's not just about cyber war. One of the the points you make in the book, you say that the next major war will be provoked by a cyber attack. What leads you to that conclusion? Well, the director of national intelligence this year publicly testified uh, that the Russian government has hacked into the controls of our power grid uh, and that the Chinese government, the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, uh, is capable of controlling uh, or affecting our controls for our natural gas pipelines. Uh, that, we suggest in the book, that creates a, a situation of crisis instability, where uh, if there is tension uh, among nations, uh, people are going to look around for, well, what, how can we do signaling? Uh, or how can we do an initial attack uh, that's not going to end up in killing people? And the answer is going to be cyber. Uh, we actually had proof of that uh, a few weeks ago uh, when the Iranians shot down a drone Uh, and the United States wanted to retaliate. Uh, The normal retaliation package was given to the president, and he initially approved it, and it was the traditional way of retaliating with cruise missiles and bombers. Um, But after a while, when they thought about it in the White House, they said, no, we don't want to go that far. Let's just start with a cyber attack, because it seems easier, less bloody, less lethal. But the problem with cyber attacks is they do destroy things uh, and they provoke retaliation. Uh, And when you get into a cycle of tit-for-tat retaliation, 
Ultimately, that ends up in a kinetic or conventional war. The Pentagon's policy, publicly articulated policy, uh, is that if the United States gets hit by a cyber attack from another nation state, and if that attack is sufficiently uh, destructive, that we reserve the right to respond with a kinetic attack. Uh, So we've said publicly, cyber attacks on us will not just be responded to with cyber attacks on you. When it comes to testing traditional kinetic weapons, you know, there's, there's, they're unambiguous. If I do a, a test of a nuclear weapon, th- that capability is clear for everyone to see. Um, but it's different in cyber. And uh, we hear that um, nation states are, are hesitant to, to demonstrate these resources for fear of, of burning those resources, that revealing them will make them less effective. And that's why deterrence doctrine from the nuclear era doesn't port uh, well over to the cyber era. Hmm. Uh, deterrence doctrine, uh, MAD, mutual assured destruction, depended upon people knowing uh, that both sides had weapons that would work, uh, knowing that those weapons could definitely get through, uh, knowing that those weapons could do a specific amount of damage. Uh, and that's not the case in cyber. Also in, in deterrence doctrine, from the nuclear era, attribution was not an issue. Um, attribution can be an issue with cyber attacks because we now know that the Russians and the Chinese and apparently the Americans uh, use each other's cyber weapons uh, to obscure who's doing the attacks. Uh, and apparently we've all stolen each other's weapons. But certainly nothing like that ever happened in the, in the nuclear era. We never had the Russians running around with the U.S. missile submarine or hmm. vice versa. Um, so you're right. We're reluctant to use a cyber weapon because once you've used it, other people can figure out how it works uh, and can build defenses against it. Uh, and therefore, we don't want to use a weapon uh, unless we absolutely have to. We can't demonstrate it. Uh, and frankly, when we pull the trigger, we can't really be confident we know how well it will work or what the defenses are uh, like that it'll have to overcome. So cyber is a different kettle of fish than uh, every other kind of combat, every other kind of war. Yeah, there's an interesting point you make in the book, and uh, you say that traditionally military strategists uh, were looking for certainty, um, and that certainty was aligned with security. But on the, in the cyber domain, uncertainty may be something that deters military action. Can you explain that difference to us? Well, no military commander wants to attack unless he knows there's a pretty good chance he's going to win. And in the case of cyber, uh, you really don't know when you launch an attack what defenses you're going to come up against. Uh, Do they already know this attack technique? Will they uh, allow you in and then uh, shut you down? And the fact that we cannot be sure how effective our offensive weapons will be at any given time Uh, means that uh, anybody advising a president or a commander uh, should tell them, uh, hey, boss, we don't know uh, that this is going to do the job. Uh, That changes things. Does that run counter to how military leaders are accustomed to thinking? Uh, It's entirely counter to what they're used to thinking. Um, They have, in the past, always been able to exercise, uh, simulate, Uh, have high probabilities of success, uh, know what the outcome will be. With cyber war, they're not that sure. When President Trump took office, 
there was some optimism that cybersecurity was going to be a focus. You know, one of his first executive orders was centered on cybersecurity. Um, how has that played out? Not well. He initially had a, a very good guy uh, running cybersecurity policy from the White House, uh, the old job I had. Uh, and that was Rob Joyce from NSA, a very mm-hmm. respected nonpartisan guy, uh, expert. Um, and John Bolton, when he came in uh, as National Security Advisor, got rid of him uh, and didn't replace him with anybody. Uh, so the old sort of cyber czar job doesn't exist. There's no one really making policy or implementing policy across the board out of the White House. The same thing happened in the State Department where Rex Tillerson came in and uh, wondered why there were people working on international cyber norms uh, and got rid of that office. They did, I will admit, uh, the Trump administration uh, did write a really good um, national security policy, national security strategy for cyber. Uh, I say it's really good because it looks a lot like the one I wrote for Bush. Um, (laughs) But they haven't implemented it. Hmm. Personally, I find it helpful in my own mind to use uh, public health as a metaphor for cybersecurity. If you look at the past hundred years of the progress we've made, where uh, we made tremendous strides in public health, and it's not perfect. You can you can wash your hands and and uh, you know do the basics, and still every every now and then you're going to get a cold. Um, do you find that, that that's a useful comparison? No. Uh, I'm sorry. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, Go um, on. <laughs> well, you know, I, I know people are always struggling to explain cybersecurity in terms of something else that people already understand. Right. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that you hear a lot from people is, well, if you just have good cyber hygiene, then you wouldn't get hacked. And I don't know what the hell that means. Hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody really knows what that means. Uh, it's not a matter of uh, good cyber hygiene. It's a matter of spending money. Uh, the companies that are spending 3 and 4% of their IT budget get hacked. The companies that are spending 8 to 10% of their IT budget on cybersecurity do not get hacked. Uh, that's nothing about hygiene. It's about money. So what, what's the take-home for the reader, the, the average person who's uh, going about their, their life, their day-to-day here in the U.S. and elsewhere? What's the message you want to send home with them? Well, cybersecurity affects everybody uh, and everything we do. Uh, from um, whether or not it's safe to go to a hospital uh, and being strapped up to a, a, an IV drip machine or a heart-lung machine. Uh, it affects who, who gets elected, how the election processes work. It could, if it, uh, we had a bad day, uh, bring down an airline uh, or bring down a power grid. And it can certainly mess your own personal life up uh, in terms of uh, credit card theft and other uh, records uh, theft. Uh, So we have a chapter in the book about uh, what this means to the individual uh, and how, what are the things an individual can do uh, to increase their own cybersecurity. So individuals should do those many things that can improve their own security, but then they should be involved in the public debate to urge corporations they deal with and governments they deal with uh, to remove the threats uh, because we know how to do it. Well, the book is The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Richard Clark, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. And we'll be publishing an extended version of my interview with Richard Clark this Sunday.
And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.